Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. Her name is Diana Cannon Ragsdale. She just published a book April 2022. It already has 46 five-star ratings on Amazon. Title of the book, it's based on her uh, last name, Loose Cannons, a memoir of mania and mayhem in a Mormon family. And like I said, it was just published April 2022. Uh, and I have her bio. Diana Cannon Ragsdale is an author, retired physical therapist, and mental health advocate for survivors of abusive and dysfunctional families. She attended Utah State University on a dance scholarship and later graduated from the University of Utah with a bachelor's degree in health sciences. In retirement, she has dedicated herself to travel and creativity. Today, she lives happily in Salt Lake City, Utah, and is a married mother of five and a grandmother of eight. And Loose Cannons is her first book. And her website is her full name. So it's Diana Ragsdale. So D-I-A-N-A-R-A-G-S-D-A-L-E.com. And it's really interesting. It definitely has a lot of mania and mayhem in it. So I would I might recommend maybe uh, more sensitive viewers or younger kids probably shouldn't listen to or be around this kind of conversation because there are some sensitive subjects. But I'm delighted to have her. So Diana Cannon Ragsdale, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So for people, this is your first book. Can you kind of talk about your background? Um, you, I know that you're a mother of five, grandmother of eight. Can you talk about what led you to write this memoir, Loose Cannons? Sure. I have wanted to write this book for about 20 years, but just haven't been in the right frame of mind and the right uh you know, time in my life where I could actually make that happen. And uh, the reason I decided to write it when I did, I started eight years ago, was I had finally gotten to a point where I was ready to organize all of the chaos I had grown up in my entire life from conception to, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago was just riddled with complete chaos. And I actually kind of didn't really realize it and probably enjoyed it because that's all I knew. But I didn't understand who I was or why because of all the chaos. And so by writing all of this down, it helped me organize the chaos and understand who I am as a person. And it's right. it's for my kids and my family. Right. So you did get some kind of cathartic or you got some release maybe from the stress of your family experiences. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yes. And can you kind of talk about your background, where you grew up and uh, your family life and kind of where, where it all started? Sure. I grew up in Salt Lake City, just in the kind of the avenues area, which is now kind of a cool part of town. But when I lived there, it wasn't as cool. Um, I was born in Farmington, New Mexico. Uh, my father was working for Shell Oil at the time. And we were not a typical Mormon family back then. My parents, once they left the, you know, the, their parents and the valley, they basically left the church and they decided to try a different lifestyle. So they, they started partying and they joined a swingers group. And it was a pretty wild time from what I'm told. And when I was two, we moved back to Salt Lake they were hoping to turn over a new leaf and leave all of that behind them, but no, it they didn't. It continued, 
And so from the time I was two until now, I've, I've lived in Utah, in various places in Utah, but but still in Utah. And so I grew you... up. Oh, go ahead. No, please continue. No, I grew up not Mormon in the beginning and then, or at least not going to church until my father remarried. And then she was super LDS. And that's, I was eight when that happened. And that's when I was kind of more indoctrinated. Gotcha. So you, you when I'm reading the introductory chapters, you had a very chaotic life. Can you talk about how many brothers and sisters you, you had and what your father and mother were like? Mm -hmm. So my father and mother married very young. My mom was 17 and my father was 19. And, you know, I think they, they were in love and they, um, you know, they, they were both raised very LDS and come from, you know, pioneer stock. So, uh, you know, very Mormon family, high expectations. But um, when we moved out of state, they had already had two boys. And then in the Four Corners area, they had a set of twins very close to the, to the two boys. I think they are two years apart. And then two years later, I came along when they moved to Farmington, New Mexico. And then when we moved back to Salt Lake, another sister was born. So that gave, that's a total of six kids in the immediate family. But then when my father remarried, and we can talk about this later, but he actually remarried my mother's sister. <laughs> then she had four kids who were technically my first cousins. So then there were 10 of us once they remarried. Can you talk about like your well, your family name goes back to an apostle of Brigham Young? Can you talk about the kind of pioneer spirit? And some people outside of the LDS community or maybe Utah may not know the importance of that um, in, within that that part of society. Can you talk about that? right? Mm -hmm. Yes, when you know, I don't know how far back you want me to go in history, but but uh, in the East in uh, Carthage, Illinois, when Joseph Smith was murdered, Brigham Young was, uh, became his, the, the president of the church. And so, or the prophet. So he led all of the people that were outcast from, from Ohio and New York to the West, to Salt Lake City, Utah. And George Q. Cannon came in that trek to Salt Lake City as Brigham Young's apostle he was the first counselor to brigham young and at the time they were all practicing polygamy including george q cannon my great great grandfather right so that's where it started and you actually had to look up in a dictionary the meaning of it right so it wasn't something that was in your immediate family right no no it wasn't yes i wasn't sure what it meant and um yeah i looked it up in the dictionary i still didn't really understand it but as I got older, you know, there was more information about it. And I actually had a few friends that left Mormonism to practice polygamy. And wow. I still have friends that were in polygamy that talk about it. Wow. So it still is kind of happening this day. And so that oh, yeah. trek, that was the pioneers were the first kind of settlers from the prosecutions on the east side of the Mississippi. So they trekked out to this land that was going to be the foundation of the LDS, right? So all right. those pioneer families, it's kind of like a special thing within Mormonism, one of the early, early LDS people, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. 
Right, right. And that was in 1847 when, when they arrived in Salt Lake City. Gotcha. So that was it. So the cannons are there. But you're, when you're growing up, you I mean, from what I ascertained from your bio, they were not, your family was not living the word of wisdom. Can you explain what the word of wisdom was and what your dad was like? Yes. So the word of wisdom is, uh, I, I mean, I don't know if there are other religions that, that have a, a standard to this, but the word of wisdom in the Mormon church is a proclamation that you will abstain from coffee, tea, hot beverages, tobacco, and, you know, abstain from alcohol. Yes. Abstain from all of that. And it's, it's kind of a health, a health edict. And, but, but if you don't follow it, you're not allowed in the temple. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of consequences if you don't follow it. And they, they teach you that as a very young child. Right. But they, so there were consequences for your father not following the word of wisdom, right? Yes. Later he, you know, they, they chose not to follow it uh, when they left the Valley. And I don't even know how, you know, how much they followed it while they were here in Salt Lake when they were newly married, but they definitely didn't follow it when they moved. And it wasn't until my dad married my mom's sister because she was staunch LDS that he started practicing the word of wisdom. And quite frankly, us kids didn't thought they used to give us beer as kids and we smoked as kids and just to try it. And it wasn't even a thing according to, you know, to our parents, my mom smoked while she was pregnant with me. So, and she never did live the word of wisdom. She kind of left the church early on, but my father started following it once he remarried. Remarried, right. So once he remarried, then you had 10 kids, right? 10 Correct. kids in one mm -hmm. house. So you married your mom. Your mom moved to Reno, right? Mom moved to Reno. Mm -hmm. And can you kind of talk about um, what happened? Like once, I mean, you kind you grew up in a pretty severe abuse, right? Yes. Mostly in the beginning, it was just a lot of neglect. My mother was extremely depressed, and you know, I I don't know how much of it was biologic, but situational. You know, I know there was a lot of that. Uh, she was very depressed and both my parents were, uh, and we didn't understand it at the time, but were diagnosed with depression and my father was diagnosed, diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And so they were in and out of the psych wards, I think from the time I was two until I was probably eight, nine and so when they'd go, they'd go sometimes at the same time. And wow. us kids were left alone and, you know, to kind of fend for ourselves. We had a grandmother and an aunt that lived nearby. And, you know, they did the best they could. But for the most part, I remember all of us just taking care of ourselves. My older brother was, you know, anywhere between 10 and 12 when most of the severe mental illness episodes were happening. So he was kind of trying to hold us together as a family. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, so, it was mostly neglect at the time. Right. And neglect. So you guys pretty much had to fend for, like you said, fend for yourself. So you had to make your own food and kind of do everything, do your laundry. And your mom was like missing for, or gone for times for two months at a time, right? Two months at a time. Yep. And she, she never, she didn't even want to come back. She was 
hoping she could just stay in the psych ward. So she was that sick. She went through electric shock treatments. It was pretty, pretty serious. Right. And so this is like early 60s, right? So things were way different back then, too. Yes, definitely. And so she left with another, with a woman, right? Can you talk about that? She did. She fell in love with a woman in the psych ward. (laughs) And they planned their, she was also married and had children from Salt Lake. And they planned their escape. And one day she up and left my dad and all six of us kids. And he didn't have a clue. And she left with this woman. They took a bus to Reno and she, she never did come back. She stayed in Reno until she passed away. Wow. So she was gone. And so then your grandma kind of took kind of a very, well, was kind of your overseer, right? And she she, was, can you talk about how that changed your life? Yes. I mean, I don't know where we'd be without her and, and my aunt Marianne, they, they both loved us and we knew that. And my grandma, you know, came in and did the best she could to help my brothers take care of us and try to make things normal for us and help my dad out who was, you know, struggling before, but then now having been abandoned by his wife for another woman, he, that's when his downfall occurred. He, he got way worse with his mental illness and that's when he became abusive. Right. So he broke your shin bone, right? Your father did something. Yeah. He broke my shin bone and yeah, he, yeah. And it took me a really long time years of therapy to kind of uncover why I was so severely abused out of all the girls. And it turns out, you know, there's always a scapegoat and that was me. So, but it took me a really long time to figure that out. He was, I was the next female who wasn't his and, you know, I was kind of the bastard child and, but I didn't know any of this at the time. I just thought I was kind of a bad kid. That's that's tough. That's a tough way to grow up. Yeah took his, uh, he was, he was a bit ver- verbally abusive, not just physically too, right? Like he was correct. Not- yes. <laughs> but you, I mean, you kind of, your grandmother kind of cleaned you guys up and got you back into the LDS church, right? Can you talk about how you were baptized and, and how that took place? Yeah. So my older siblings had been baptized and I'm not actually even sure if my dad baptized them or not, probably not. It might have been my grandpa because he wasn't really active in the church when they were having kids. Um, But when I got baptized, my mom had just left and my grandma, you know, asked me if I was ready to get baptized. Of course, I had been to church just a handful of times because our lives were so chaotic. And when I had gone, it was usually with grandma and we liked it. You know, it was um, it was kind of a nice atmosphere and we got to sing and, you know, learn primary stories and Bible stories. And we had friends there and we, you know, we got to have a bath and get cleaned up. So we liked church and we liked doing anything with my grandma, but we really hadn't been much when she brought up the idea of getting baptized. And in my head, it was just something that was expected. You're eight, it's time to get baptized. So that's what we do. So my uncle baptized me and my cousin on the same day. She had just turned eight and I had been eight for a few months. And so we got baptized together in the tabernacle downtown Salt Lake. And it was, it was scary for me because I didn't really know what I was in for, but, but I felt like I was doing the right thing and a good thing. And, 
you know, the promise is, is that your all of your sins are washed away and you get to start off with a clean slate. And I had already, I already had a few sins under my belt as an eight-year-old. I was swearing, we were stealing. I had tried smoking. So those sins were gone for a few minutes anyway. <laughs> and that was in the kind of, right, the famous temple in very center of Salt Lake City, right? Yes. So that's, that's yes. So this is like talking. the Vatican of Salt Lake City. Right. Right. And so um, you you kind of grew, when you moved into your mom's old place, you were around all of the kind of uh, elite of the church, right? Can you kind of talk about what that was like with being around kind of all these famous Mormons in, in Utah? Yeah. So So when my dad married my stepmom or my aunt that's when we were we moved from the avenues which we were kind of struggling financially and it was getting to be pretty run down there so when he when he married her she had money from her prior divorce and they were able to afford a really nice home in the you know kind of uppity area of it's called the harvard yale area and that's where a lot of the prophets lived and um, apostles and you know the higher higher ups in the church hierarchy lived so it was really cool and we knew you know to know that it was really cool it was talked about um, the air was that you know we were so privileged to live there and Hubie Brown who was a, an, a a general authority lived right next door to us and he I remember him coming over and playing hopscotch with us one wow. time so yeah it was it right. was a really nice area and so those are, and what Spencer Kimball's the prophet, so that the head of the church isn't like a pope, it's the prophet. So they filled that space that Joseph Smith did, Brigham Young, and on and on, right? So, right, right. So yeah, it was kind of a big deal that he was in our stake. Right, they call it a stake. Can you describe what a stake is for people who don't know what that is? Yes. So kind of, it starts with a ward, and the ward is your, basically kind of your close neighborhood and, you know, it's a demographic area of, I would say, you know, maybe a mile or so. And so those are, that's just kind of in your neighborhood. And then a stake is several wards, like three to five wards can, you know, combine to make a stake. And then you have a stake president who's over all of the bishops of the wards. Right. So does it's, that make sense? I think so. It's kind of almost like it. it's still in pyramid where they, it expands out, right? So the stake definitely, then, yeah. Right. yeah. The stake is bigger, and then those stake presidents answer to a branch, and you know they all—I don't even—they answer to the the whole entire church itself. In some even even the plotting that Joseph Smith came up with was very unique too. Like it all centers at the very center is the temple, and then all the streets—they're not like acres, right? He did it right. Can you explain that? Still there? Um, yeah, but Joseph Smith, he did something where that he he doesn't have like a the from the English the acreage or plot or the size thing. He did something where oh, I think you're on mute, Diana. Did I mute you? You need your mic isn't connected. Okay, there you go. You're back. Okay. Can you hear me there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can you explain how he laid out his his plots? Because it's very very different. Maybe you take it for granted, but I don't think it's the standard kind of Anglo-Saxon yes, approach to learning. It is a unique system. He he developed a grid system is what they call it. And everything was centered around the temple. 
So then everything north of the temple starts at North Temple, and that's everything north of the temple is the avenues where Salt Lake City really started. And so that's the avenues. And then everything south of the temple is the entire valley. And then there's East Temple and West Temple. So those are actual names of streets. And then beyond those, so for example, South Temple, if you went one block south, that's first south, second south, third south. And by now there's about 140th south. So it goes 140 blocks south of the temple. But that's the landmark that where everything starts on that grid system. It's interesting. Right. So it's just expanded and Salt Lake City has grown and grown and grown. And and Joseph Smith, he was like a Catholic, too, where he believed that having family, like the theology is having large families. Can you explain that within the LDS, LDS Church? Yeah, I mean, that's a big premise of the LDS Church is, you know, that's the only way they can grow. I think that was the whole point of polygamy as well, was to expand numbers in of members. You know, the LDS church is all about growing their numbers. And especially since it's such a new new church, then, you know, it's important that those numbers grow quickly instead of organically. <laughs> right. So it was a way to kind of build the church. And I think that he made this rationale that you're giving the theology is you're giving a spirit a physical body. Right. And so then you're getting I forgot what it was. It's like you're getting you're increasing your own. Uh, lineage or something like that. Like he had, he had something kind of somewhat, somewhat unique in his theological reason for having large kids. I forgot what it was. Right. So yeah, I think where you're going with this is that, you know, as before you're born, you're a spirit child in heaven and that you actually get to choose your parents, which seems absurd to me because I wouldn't have chosen. <laughs> and you choose gender too. You choose your gender and your parents. Your gender and your parents and then when you're born, then you become, you have a physical body and you go through what they call a veil. So you forget everything in the pre-existence. So you go through a veil and now you have an earthly body and you're here on this earth to be tested and to multiply and replenish and pass all the tests in order to go back through the veil and live in the three kingdoms of glory if you pass all the tests when when you die. Right. So it's what? Telestial, celestial, which it's, three? I forgot. Yeah, the terrestrial, telestial, and celestial. Telestial, right. And that's based on a statement of Paul. I think he took that, a statement of Paul that you sent. Uh, we all shine on like the stars and the moon and the sun, right? It's actually was repeated by a Beatles lyric. Huh. My memory doesn't doesn't serve me as well as it used no. to, but it's uh, the Beatles took it from the Bible, and I think that Joseph Smith that was his take or whoever yeah. at the very foundation of the LDS Church had that, and he that's what the whole thing is. So your marriage too is terrestrial and celestial, right? So there's when you get sealed, you you go for one marriage and then you get sealed for eternity in celestial. Correct. Isn't that right? Or can you explain well, that? I'm not clear on that. Well, you get you get married in the temple to have the chance to have a eternal family that will live on forever, but you still aren't guaranteed that you'll go to the celestial kingdom. You'll, you know, you still have to live certain standards and pay a certain amount of tithing and pass certain tests and have achieved a certain amount of status before you can. I mean, before you, the celestial kingdom is the highest degree. So if you're 
For example, if you had a lot of sins, but you still tried, you'll probably end up in one of the lower kingdoms. Or if all of your family is apostate, then you, you won't be able to be with, they might be in this, you know, the terrestrial kingdom and you'll be in the celestial kingdom because they didn't live up to the, all of their promises and their commitments. Right. So there's a pressure within practicing LDS to be super pure and clean so that you can enter the celestial kingdom and be with your family. A huge amount of pressure. And it's not just for your own salvation. It's for your whole family's salvation. You're affecting everybody. Right. Yeah. It's very intense. And, um, so you were growing up, this is like 1969, and both of your parents were physically abu- abusive, right, Carol and your father? Yeah, my stepmother was. My mother wasn't. She was more, you know, neglectful and just an emotion, you know, just emotionally unavailable. And then she abandoned us. So, but my stepmother and my father were physically abusive and verbally. And so what happened next in your life as you kind of were growing up? You're probably around eight or 10 at this time, right? Yes, I was eight. I got baptized. And then my father married my aunt when I was 10. And my mom actually had to give written permission for them. They they still were not divorced when, when my dad and her sister were married, that she ended up having to sign a paper, which, which, um, you know, allowed them to be married because they were still right. technically married and he filed for a divorce and it it was legalized the day before dad and Carol got married. So my mom knew they got married, um, but only that day. She didn't know that they were planning on Gary getting married before that, but until she got the letter asking her to sign the divorce decree so that they could get married, she didn't know about it. Gotcha. So then then he married my mom's sister and she had been recently divorced and had four kids. And so they were my cousins and we knew them, you know, they were around a little bit. They lived in Arizona, but, but I remember knowing them, you know, vaguely when they were younger. So when they decided to get married, we were all kind of, well, I, I think the four girls were excited about it because we kind of already knew them. We already loved them. We thought, you know, well, this is going to be great. She's our aunt. You know, this is not just some stranger that we don't know. And she's familiar and she loves us. So this is going to be awesome. <laughs> My two brothers did not feel the same, but but we felt like that, us four girls that were younger. Gotcha. And so kind of what happened next is you were growing up in your teens. Like your dad, they, your father and stepmother became more uh, involved in the church, right? Yes, she she had been active her whole life and is also pioneer stock. And and um, she, you know, I don't I think it was a little bit slow to get to convince my dad that, you know, he needed to start shaping up. But um, she was always she had always been unwavering in her membership in the church. And. So from the get-go, once she moved in, we started going to church every single Sunday. It wasn't an option. And um, like I said, we had been raised in so much chaos that we rather enjoyed it because it was kind of a, a safe haven for us. We had friends and people who cared about us and, you know, kind of a spiritual connection. And us girls enjoyed it. I don't think the boys did at all because they were older and they had been kind of more set in their ways. But... 
you know, I think in the beginning, I, you know, my opinion is, is that it was a good thing. It gave us, you know, some semblance of normalcy and a family and a community. And we just didn't realize at the time, and I'm just kind of the one that didn't ever really drink the Kool-Aid. All the, all my other three sisters really, really got embedded in it and still are. All right. So they're still in, you've kind of drifted off and you include some, uh notes and uh, journals from your mother, right? Yes. Can you talk about that? Yes. I am so grateful to her. I didn't know until, because I was estranged, she'd come and visit us every once in a while, but it was always kind of weird and awkward when she did. And we didn't really enjoy it when she'd come to visit. And it was like once every year or two, but the last four to five years of her life, she and I reconnected and and so did the other girls with her. And it was at that time when we learned that her form of therapy from abandoning her family was to journal. And so for 35 years, she journaled every, you know, every day, pretty much. And um, I'm so grateful to that because I would have never been able to write this memoir because I don't remember everything. And she provided context and timeline and so there, it's amazing that she has all those journals. And then my dad journaled also, and so did my stepmom. It was, it's a big thing in the Mormon church. So Mormon, wow. So everybody had very thorough journals. Yeah. What did you learn? I mean, were you able to look through your dad's and your stepmother's journals as well? Oh, yes. Not my stepmother's. I have, I have some of hers, but she was not nearly as candid <laughs> in her journals. Hers were more kind of spiritual based. And my mother's are you know, extremely detailed and they were difficult for me to read. And, but I've read every single one of them um, from cover to cover. My dad journaled sporadically and he was very candid, but his were more, you know, when he was having kind of his manic episodes. So a lot of them are extremely disjointed and disturbing. And, you know, when he was, uh, he had some suicidal ideations that he'd write down. So they just made me sad, but moms provided, a lot of context, you know, to, for things to help me kind of organize the chaos in my life. And how, how many pages did their journals amount to? Do you recall? Oh, geez. Well, there's 35 spiral bound notebooks that my mom left me just wow. hers alone. And then my dad's, I think some of his got lost along the way. I wish I had them, but he journaled, he went to jail once and he journal, journaled in jail. And then he just used to write on random pieces of paper. And so I have all of his handwritten writings and a few computer generated ones back when computers were just new and they're on, you know, just old printed paper. So. And so, wow, fascinating. So, so those were, you kind of have excerpts from your mom's through the book and what was it like kind of growing up in your teens as a Mormon in your household? Well, you know, I mean, I think I think a lot of times what it would have been in like without the church, and I feel like we were better off being raised in the church than without it because the way things were going when we were really young before he married my aunt, we were we were kind of little street urchins and really had no guidance. And I think my dad's mental illness would have gotten worse and then, you know, that would have that would have had a trickle down effect on us for the worse. So I think by 
him marrying my stepmom and growing up in the church, it provided us with some structure and some rules, albeit they were very strict and I didn't want to adhere to them most of the time. Um, I think for us, it was what we needed at the time, a spiritual you know, outlet, good people, people who loved us. Um, I didn't really pay attention to all of the teachings, but I was definitely a convert to the culture and the family and the life. And we learned, we learned how to be domestic. We learned service, you know, so I think all in all, it was, it was a good thing for our youth. Right. And they always, the Mormon church pretty much keeps you busy, right? There's all kinds of things. That, you know, yeah. Yes. Um, like a lot of idle time. <laughs> yeah, right. And you can't play cards if you're really LDS. So some games of chance you're not allowed to play. So yeah, you know, my dad used to call us liberal Mormons because I don't think he, he was a lot like me and didn't want to have to follow all the rules exactly. So we actually played cards. We played, we didn't play a lot of face cards, but we did play Tripoli and we didn't play poker, but we played, we played cards and we even did on Sunday, which was a big no, no to a lot of my friends' families. But yeah, we were a lot more liberal than a lot of the families around us. And the Sundays, you have three hours of church. It's not like a one-hour service, right? So you're there. I can't remember. It's like the women get separate. You go for one hour together, and then the women and the men get separated, right? Like, Correct. Mm -hmm. The women and the men get separated. And then you come back together for a meeting. Um, and then there were also meetings during the week. We had one as youth. We had a meeting called Primary where we go Wednesday afternoons after school for an hour to an hour and a half. And the boys had their activities. And then as a little bit older youth, we had, you know, young adult groups that we'd get together during the week in the evenings and have meetings and activities. And it was, you know, we did sports through the church. We were never allowed to play, you know, school sports extracurricularly it was all everything our whole bubble was surrounded by church activities you know camping we went on hikes and bike rides and it was our world was church was the church and you kind of had an interesting like fear you thought you was that right did i read it right that you thought you might have had an interaction with ted bundy yes <laughs> can you talk about that yes i was in i was a about a sophomore in high school when he was in Salt Lake at the time. And there were a lot of sightings and reports that he had kidnapped, you know, girls in Salt Lake. So that was the early seventies. And we all knew what he looked like and we knew what he drove because it was all over the news. But my brother and I were taking my little brother to school one day and we had private detectives following us, but we thought it was Ted Bundy because we didn't know they were private detectives until we found out later that we, my uncle who was Carol's husband hired private detectives to follow us to see if my parents were being abusive so they could get custody of my youngest stepbrother slash cousin. So we assumed it was Ted Bundy because he kind of looked like him, you know, and it was all over the media and we were scared of him. <laughs> It was like a, a scary moment. I think he got a couple victims in Salt Lake, if I remember correctly. He did. He did. And I think he became a member of the church, actually, if I remember my Ted Bundy right. But yeah, uh, I, I think he was raised Mormon. Oh, wow. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Um, Dana, we're at about 35 minutes. Could you mind taking a few questions? I have one here from Oswald. Okay. He's asking, uh, are LDS allowed to take psychiatric medication? They are, you know, that it's interesting because, you know, LDS does believe in anything Western medicine. So as far as I know, there's no restrictions on medications. And the church prefers that if you're having psychiatric issues that you, you know, you go to your bishop or kind of try to keep it within the church circle. But they're also not against you reaching out to professionals for psychiatric help or medication. And, and this, your experiences as a child kind of uh, kind of put you kind of wanted to become a health advocate. Can you talk about getting into health advocacy and uh, how you got into it and how you practice that? How I got into, you mean physical therapy and that? Yeah, you were a physical therapist, but you were also a mental health advocate for survivors of abusive or dysfunction. Or you still are? Is that correct? Or yeah, I, I used to volunteer for uh, child abuse um, people against child abuse in Utah. So I volunteered with that organization for a while and I don't do anything actively with that since I've been writing the book, I've been busy, but gotcha. I've always been very health conscious. And even, even though I don't live the word of wisdom, I'm a very healthy person. <laughs> and because of my dance background, I, I've always been interested in the physical body and, and being healthy and physical therapy was a good choice for me and a good fit just because of the biomechanics and, and the healthiness of being a dancer and then uh, practiced physical therapy. You know, I think that kind of just pushed me into that, that field because of those reasons. Gotcha. And Diana, we're at about 37 minutes. What else would you like to add? Is there anything I missed before we kind of uh, wrap up this discussion about your book, Loose Cannons? No, I think you've covered a lot of good things. I, you know, I would just like to add that my whole intention for writing this book is for me to heal and hopefully other people can learn from, you know, my experience and my uh, experience with the church. And I just want to say that, you know, my writing this book is there's no intention there to be harmful against the church or my family. It's all done in love and I'm not anger. I'm just I just um, want to put out the message that, you know, you can grow up in trauma and dysfunction and still find happiness. That's great. And you left the church in 2016 and you kind of ended the book saying you're happier than ever in your life. So I'm glad yeah, that you made it through. Officially in 2016, but I really have not been involved much at all since my, after my first divorce in 2005, I was kind of in and out a little bit, but for the most part, I was out but officially I resigned in 2016. I see. Okay. So you're right. And there's a lot more to this book. I mean, we only got up to your teenage years. So people, I recommend you go check out this book already has 46 five-star ratings in the U S on Amazon. There is an audio book as well. Right. Is that right? Dana? Correct. Uh -huh. And uh, so there's a lot of ways you can listen to this story. Um, and your website is dianaragsdale.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So if people want to reach out to you. They can, they can contact you there uh, through a contact summary. Yes, yes, and I would welcome that. Awesome. So if people have any more questions or anything, please do go to our website. I will put the website link in the show notes. And again, the author's name is Diana Cannon Ragsdale. Title of the book is Loose Cannons, a memoir of mania and mayhem in a Mormon family, just published April 2022. So thank you so much for your time. 
You bet. Thank you so much. All right, take care. Take care. Okay. Stay there. Stay there. Stay there. Stay there. Okay.